tonight on Body Talk, we're going to be reviewing a couple of different clips on historical trauma. And going deeper into the responsibility of healing. Hang on, body talk. So I'm driving in my car. I'm on my way to work. It's about eight o'clock. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm running late, as usual. And I get a call from an unknown number. I don't know why, on this particular day, I decided it would be a good idea to answer. And before I know it, I'm in the middle of telling this complete stranger my whole life story. How lately, I'd been feeling a little disconnected from my friends, my family, Things that I used to be passionate about were just no longer holding my attention. How the anxiety that had started in college had given way to full-blown panic attacks. I was now avoiding things like public transportation and large crowds. How the alcohol use that had started around the same time was now more of a lifestyle. I was drinking myself to sleep most nights, a little bit more on the weekends. What I had forgotten was a couple days earlier, my mental health had hit an all-time low, and I was cold-calling therapists in my area seeking services. So unbeknownst to me, my new therapist was on the other end of the phone. And she said to me in a very calm but stern way, the way that therapists talk to their clients, she said, Tom, I think that you're an alcoholic. And I said, screw this lady. And I hung up. <laughs> But as my day went on, I started to think, you know what, she might be right. I do drink quite a bit, and at this point, I'm desperate. So I call her back. I tell her, all right, all right, I'm ready to work with you. She says, great, take yourself to a 12-step meeting. Call me next week. God damn it. All right. <laughs> so off I go, on my way to my first 12-step meeting, determined to prove to this complete stranger that I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just broken, and she's supposed to fix me. And I learned a couple of really interesting things. The first thing I learned is that I am definitely, by the book, definition, an alcoholic. I thought that this, I thought somehow this woman had staged people in this room to tell me my story exactly back to me. I was like, who is this? Who is this person? How do you even know where I am? And the second thing I learned is that I was not alone. In fact, most people that I meet in recovery felt the exact same way that I did. The problem was not our substance of choice. The problem started long before that. The problem was here. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about the efficacy of 12-step programming and talk therapy when it comes to addiction treatment, but I will say, if you're struggling, please, please talk to somebody. It does get better. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Now, what I'm here to talk to you about is the field of epigenetics. Why are we talking about genetics? 
What you don't know about me is that I'm a social worker. I work with children and family involved in the child welfare system. And in social work school and along our careers, we learn very clearly that increased levels of stress, especially early in our lives, lead to higher instances of mental health crisis, substance use, and violent crime later in life. This is social work and psychology 101, right? A good example of this is low-income communities. Low-income, high stress, higher instances of mental health issues, substance use, violent crime. Now, our society is incredibly good at pathologizing and medicating these issues, also criminalizing these issues, but that's a talk for another day. No, this left me with a really big question. What about me? Why was it that I was facing a mental health crisis? I never had identified as having any abnormal stress in my life. I didn't have childhood trauma. In fact, I think I had it pretty good. And this is what led me to the field of epigenetics. And epigenetics is the study of how our environments can impact our genes. Because in social work, we have a saying, which is that when it comes to mental health crisis, it's our genetics that load the gun, and it's our environment that pulls the trigger. This is no longer a conversation of nature versus nurture. This is yes and both. So a study that was published in 2014 followed a family of mice. And what they did is they removed these baby mice from their mother for just a couple hours a day for weeks at a time. Now mice, very much like humans, need close familial contact at a young age. And not surprisingly, these baby mice, as they developed into adult mice, began to show symptoms of neurosis. They were displaying neurotic behavior. This goes back to what we know about social work. High levels of stress, especially early in our lives, lead to later instances of mental health crisis later. This is something we might call in humans post-traumatic stress disorder. But this is where the study gets really interesting because they followed those baby mice. And they studied the offspring of those mice. And those baby mice also displayed the same neurotic behaviors as their parents did. And then the offspring of those mice also displayed the same neurotic behaviors that their parents and grandparents did. This went on for three generations, three times removed from the initial stressful trigger. And the study goes on to talk about mRNA sequencing and other things that, as a social worker, I'll admit, I don't understand. But it really got me thinking. I don't know about you, but I didn't have to go very far back in my family history to find significant instances of trauma. This is across the board on both sides of my family, but there's one story in particular that I think is important to share with you. My grandfather served in World War II when he was 18 years old. And he passed away just last year at 100 years old. And before he died, he wrote me a letter. In this letter, he wrote about his experience in World War II, something that happened to this man 80 years before he died. It was one of the most important things that he could think to communicate to his grandson. 
It's no secret in my family that this man was plagued with symptoms of post-traumatic stress, except that when he came back, post-traumatic stress was not a diagnosis that you could have. The more I got to know about him, the more I realized this man is just like me. This inability to form close emotional relationships, this inability to slow down or stop, this fear that if you ever let your guard down, something terrible might happen. But then what happened after World War II? After World War II, things were pretty good. Business was booming. People were having children. The baby boomer generation, the largest generation we had ever seen. I think it's safe to say that this is a generation of Americans who was born to parents with increased levels of stress. But then what happened in their lives? Things like the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King assassination, JFK, the Challenger explosion, the Vietnam War. To boot with the increase in television and radio news programming, you no longer had to experience the stress firsthand. Now you could be impacted by stressful events simply by being at home. What if we fast forward to my generation? I remember being in school and hearing about 9-11. I remember hearing about Columbine. I remember hearing about Hurricane Katrina. What about kids now? What about Sandy Hook? What about Las Vegas? What about Pulse nightclub? What about COVID-19? Right now in America, we're facing the largest mental health epidemic that we have ever seen. Rates of suicide, of substance use, of overdose, of violent crime are higher than they've ever been. One in four American adults is diagnosed and treated for mental health. If you qualify for Medicaid, that number doubles. I do not believe that we're facing a mental health crisis. I believe what we're facing is a collective traumatic response. We are generation after generation of Americans genetically predisposed to high levels of stress, living in a time of unprecedented levels of stress. If you think something might be wrong, you're probably right. Not only is it okay to not be okay, at this point in American history, it is downright normal. But we can't heal until we get honest with ourselves. That's the first step in any program of recovery, admitting that we have a problem. If you take one thing from this talk today, please understand that any of these regular diagnoses that have become so common in American culture can exist on a spectrum. It's very possible to be a little bit anxious a little bit depressed, a little bit addicted. It's time that we get honest about this and start healing, not only for ourselves, but for future generations.
Because while we may not be responsible for what happened before we got here, we are absolutely responsible for what happens next. Thank you. a four-year-old son. He's the greatest love of my life. Never, not once, has it ever occurred to me that he could be taken away from me. And it certainly never crossed my mind that this could happen because of the colour of my skin. Yet, throughout the 1900s in Australia, the country where I'm from, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were taken away from their mothers. They were forcibly removed from their cultures, their communities, and their families, and placed into government institutions and non-Indigenous foster families under the assimilation policy. Many of these children never saw their mothers again. These children are known as the Stolen Generations. I'm a documentary photographer, and in 2014, I began to work with women from the Stolen Generations to tell their stories through photographs. This is Susan, who was born in the Northern Territory and removed at birth from her mother, thousands of kilometers away, to a family in Sydney. Susan didn't see her mother again for 21 years. Susan said, Every day I walk a path of recovery from the policy that removed children from their parents. I was stolen. I still feel the silent pain that is mine and my mother's. This is Jenny, Susan's daughter. This policy had such immense ramifications that not only affected those children who were physically removed and their immediate families, it's affected many generations afterwards. In 2008, the former Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, made a formal apology to all First Australians for the profound grief, suffering and loss that this policy had caused. I still lived in Sydney at the time, and I watched the government's apology on television from my Sydney apartment. I watched as members of the Stolen Generation sobbed as the Prime Minister made this apology. And it made me feel many things, but the two dominant emotions were a very deep pain for what the Stolen Generations and their families had experienced, and also a very deep sense of shame that as a white Australian, I'd known little about the suffering of first Australians, and that, as a non-Indigenous Australian, I had been so blind to the covering up of history. This is Caroline, who said, My mother, grandmother and older sister were stolen generations. I miss their presence and whispers of knowledge, gently, steering me on the right wave. These gaps in my life still stay with me, cloaked in the grief, moving like the tide. 
This is Jasmine, a young and wonderful mother, who said to me, because of what happened, I'm afraid the same thing could happen to my own child. In Aboriginal society, female elders become known as auntie. This is Auntie Grace. Auntie Grace told me while I was taking her portrait that when she was born, Aboriginal women were not allowed inside the hospital, so she had been born in a shed out the back. I think about having my own child and about how vulnerable I felt during childbirth, and I cannot imagine the fear and pain of having to go through such a difficult experience, not in the actual hospital bed, but in a shed out the back of the hospital grounds. I now live between London and Australia, but I return frequently to Australia to produce my photographic work. Australia is and always will be my home. When I'm away from Australia, I miss the landscape. I long to be back there. I miss the wildness of the place, the light and everything about it. It's the only place I really feel I belong. Yet reflecting on my own past makes me consider how we, as a nation, have told our own historical narrative and the voices and stories of first Australians, which have been almost entirely left out of our historical dialogue for over 230 years since colonisation. The historical narrative I was taught focused on the bravery of the new explorers and settlers who was seen to have tamed a wild and rugged landscape. This narrative not only served to disempower First Australians, but by disqualifying their history and achievements, it also served to justify the violent actions of the new settlers. When I think about living between London and Sydney, I think about the fact that because I've lived for so many years between worlds, I don't really fit into either world. I live in that space in between. But this was my choice, and it was only my choice. The stolen generations had no choice. This is Lorraine, who wrote the following poem about belonging. Belonging where? Caught in arc abyss. Belonging where? Thousands of children Heartache, despair, stolen, separated, leaving mothers behind, lost to our culture, music, dance and art, lost to ourselves, our families, our hearts, as a child wondering, what did I do wrong? Who the hell am I, feeling so strong? The taunts of a childhood, all a whirl. Half-caste, half-caste, little black girl, Italiano, Greek, Maori, or what? Some of the questions asked a lot. Too black to be white, too white to be black. Caught in the middle, belonging nowhere. To belong to somewhere, to belong to a community and a group is perhaps one of the most fundamental of human needs. The stolen generations were robbed of this. The anthropologist W.E.H. Stanner wrote about a culture of disremembering. 
which has occurred throughout the history of Australia. Stanner went on to say that in Australia, we have continued to honour a silence, which was not only a silencing on the voices of first Australians, but it was also a silencing on any telling of an alternative history. He called this silence the Great Australian Silence. I made this photographic series as a way of acknowledging, recognising and remembering these voices which have been wrongly silenced in the past. As a photographer, I think it's important to continually ask myself why I produce this work. I constantly ask myself, do I have the right to produce this work and to talk about these issues through my art as a non-Indigenous Australian? Do I have the right to talk about other people's pain, which is not directly my own? Another question which I'm constantly pondering is, do the descendants of pioneering generations inherit moral culpability for the actions of their forebearers? Does my generation inherit the moral culpability of what happened long before we were born? Yes, I think we do. I think we have to consider our role and our family's role in the pain of the past. Throughout Australia, the effects of colonisation had devastating impacts on First Australians. One of the states which saw extreme violence was the island state of Tasmania. The ultimate cause of what came to be known as the Black War, which was a war fought between colonists and First Australians, First Tasmanians in this case, occurred around the dates of 1824 to 1831. Colonists claiming the land for themselves was the ultimate cause of this war, but a further trigger, it's believed by historians, was the abduction and rape of Aboriginal women by the white colonists. This photographic series is titled No Blood Stained the Wattle. The wattle is a native Australian flower. This series uses the massacres and the conflicts of the frontier to talk about the notion of deliberate historical forgetting throughout Australia's history. I worked with the research of the prominent historian, Professor Lyndall Ryan, who has spent many years researching the massacre sites throughout Australia. I researched each site thoroughly before visiting all of the sites throughout the island. I photographed with a large format camera, which is analog, and I use film. Working this way makes me work in a slower and more reflective way. I would go to these massacre sites and stay in the sites for several hours, waiting for the light to change and reflecting on what had occurred in that very spot many years before. This is a place called Sally Peak, where in 1823, Aboriginal men killed two stockkeepers in a reprisal murder for the abduction and rape of Aboriginal women. Stockkeepers then retaliated and killed an unknown number of First Tasmanians. They photographed First Tasmanians whose ancestors had witnessed the violence and whose bloodlines had survived. 
all of the people in this series are connected either through marriage or through bloodlines. The portraits in this series are always paired with a landscape and consider how attachment to the land and a particular place is deeply embedded in our identity and our sense of belonging. This is Eliza, who suggested that when I take her portrait, she paint her face with ochre, which is what she uses for traditional women's ceremonies. Although that particular portrait wasn't the one I chose for the series, Eliza then suggested that perhaps I use the ochre to physically paint on the actual photographic negative. I painted on top of the actual negative and then used nails, fingernails or other sharp objects which I found in the sites of massacres and which I had permission to use to physically scratch through the actual photographic negative, physically inflicting on the negative the actual violence that the same landscape had bore witness to. Our history and the telling of our history has been altered, damaged, distorted and manipulated. Therefore, I felt my images needed to do the same. After painting on the surface of the negative with ochre, I would then often physically change and change the actual photographic negative. This constant evolving of the ochre on the surface of the film reflects our own evolving understanding of history. The next series which I'd like to show you is called The Dark Forgetting. This work is a collaboration with elders from the Bathurst region. This work looks at the Wiradjuri people who were involved with the Bathurst War in 1824 when white colonists moved in to claim the land. This war resulted in massive depopulation of the Wiradjuri people. I was born in Wiradjuri land and so this particular series has a very deep personal connection to me. In this series, I reflect on historical truth-telling and revealing dark, hidden corners of history. I painted on the actual physical photographic negatives and then overlaid other photographs and images on top to reveal hidden layers and the multi-layered aspects of history. All things are personal, arguably, all artists put a large component of self into their artwork. We all perceive life from our uniquely individual perspective. And so all of my work is deeply personal. It's deeply intuitive and comes very much from my gut. Perhaps it's my recognition of the possibility of ancestors' culpability, of the fact that we all need to take responsibility for the past, even if it occurred long before we were born. To be seen, to be heard, for our pain to be understood and recognized is perhaps one of the greatest healers of all. My work aims to do this. My images aim to tell the stories of others and by the sharing of pain and grief caused by an unjust history, they aim to work as a tool of healing we all wear history 
like a layer of clothing against our bodies. Perhaps the clothing moves, the air comes between the fabric and our skin. But it's always there. Our past is always present. And we need to understand this past because we are all a part of history. And if we don't understand it, we'll always remain chained to it. Thank you. Maria Yellowbird Braveheart talking about historical trauma and the use of museums to bring issues of the past into the light. Taking a approach to keeping the narrative of colonizer colonialism, settler colonialism in the exhibits in order to tell both sides so that that violence is not erased. The memory of that violence is not erased. Hang on, body talk. Maria, it is such a joy for me to be able to spend time with you while you're here. Looking forward to your lecture. And um, just, I feel so honored to be able to be spending this time asking you some questions. So, you know, why don't you just sort of share a little bit about your journey to Smith? How did you get here? What made you come? Um, I initially never thought of being in academia. I was, I started out as a clinician. I got my master's at Columbia when it was very psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, and that was the culture there that um, people were often in their own therapy as part of learning how to do this work and, you know, which, which is also typical in the psychoanalytic training institutes that you go through a training analysis. And so um, I knew very early on that I wanted to work you know, in behavioral health, and all of my focus was, was behavioral health, mental health, uh, therapy. Um, my first, well, both of my field placements, I, I had the opportunity to work with both adults and children, which was ideal. Mm. Yeah. What I love is how you found your way here by listening to people who are important in your life. I was doing a presentation, um, and this was at uh, what's now called Sitting Bull Tribal College. It's uh, on the Standing Rock Reservation in North and South Dakota. And one of our elders came up after the presentation and said to me, that was really good. You need to get your PhD, huh. she said. And her, she's a nurse. Her name's Bertha Gipp. And I'll always remember that. And that just, that just planted the seed in my head. I had never thought about going on for a PhD. Mm -hmm. And that was the first sign. And then, I, so I started thinking about it. And then I saw um, an ad for Smith in an NASW newspaper. 
and it also caught my eye and then it talked about Smith having an anti-racist policy. Hmm. I think I had also some intuitive sort of things going on too or just synergistic pieces because I didn't realize until I got to Smith um, and they started you know, talking about the history of the school and classes, mm -hmm. that Smith was a trauma school. Right. And so it was founded to initially to work with war neurosis, to train mm -hmm. providers to work with war neurosis. Mm -hmm. And I just thought this is, this is pretty uncanny because my area is historical trauma and unres unresolved mm -hmm. grief for mm -hmm. Native people. So. Right. It was just a, it's a perfect fit. And Absolutely. in the first, within the first two weeks, um, Dr. Roger Miller, who was at that time Absolutely. the director of the doctoral program, yeah. and um, was asking, asking us to meet with him mm -hmm. and to talk with him about what our interests were in thinking about our dissertations, what mm -hmm. we were going to do. Right. So I talked to him about my historical trauma work and and you know developing an intervention want to develop an intervention more fully and that's when um, he said well you could do that for your dissertation you could do a kind of a pretest post test design of the effectiveness and i was like yes nice. thank you that's absolutely. perfect absolutely perfect mm -hmm. so i knew that there was this the synergy and smith was the place mm -hmm. that was exactly where i was supposed to be yeah Nice. And um, so that was very su much supported. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, when you were talking about um, the work you had done before you came to Smith, right after your master's, I think that the way you started building your appreciation even for not only the psychoanalytic work you did, but for the social work you did is also really important. It's an important thread that you carry with you. Like some of your stories, about like your first assessment and um, home visits, I think are so yeah. valuable. Yeah, I know what I was sharing with you before was uh, my first, so I was about 21 years old, my first um, home visit mm -hmm. and my first year of field placement was at a community, it was an outpatient community mental health center that had been part of a settlement house originally mm -hmm. was its origins. and. Mm -hmm and it was in um, Spanish Harlem and it was just an amazing experience the community was so warm and embracing and but my first my first home visit was in a half abandoned fifth floor walk up mm. building mm. and i was you know very green mm -hmm. and it, i was visiting a a woman who was schizophrenic and stable on her meds and her daughter had been taken away but reunited with her okay. and so I was also working with her daughter so this is my very first home visit and and you were how old 21 I was about 21 <laughs> and then I was I was my two biggest fears were junkies and rats <laughs> I was like I didn't want to run into either so I thought if I stomp up the steps that you know I'll scare them off and so but but my plan was foiled because every second or third step was all rotted out. Oh my gosh. Big holes in the step. Oh. And so I just, I made it up to the top because she lived on the fifth floor and she opened the door and she was pretty flat from her medication, but she was mm -hmm. stable. Mm -hmm. 
And then she, um, she asked me if I wanted something to eat. And as she was asking me, which I wouldn't have accepted anyway in terms of just the professionalism. Right. But That's the one thing that we remember. Yeah. Never, boundaries, boundaries. Right, <laughs> right. So she op as she opens her refrigerator door, uh, roaches are crawling uh, all uh, over the food uh, inside there. It's just roach infested. And mm. I said, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> I think I took a glass of water, though, to yes. be, you know, appropriate. Absolutely. So we talked, and then um, when our session was over, she said that she said, I'll watch for you while you go until you get out the door. Wow. Because from her landing right outside her door, mm -hmm. she could look down uh, and see the door. Absolutely. And I was just so touched by that. Yeah. I was like, and that was yeah. the metaphor for the community that. Mm that the people in the community knew who all the Columbia students were, even mm -hmm. though many of us could have blended in with the community, everybody mm -hmm. knew. Absolutely. And it was just amazing, and then that whole experience, mm -hmm. and, and dispelling those stereotypes that, that existed at the time, that, yeah. well, poor people and people of color don't have insight, yes. they can't use insight-oriented therapy, and that was so not my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was just, I had, kids i had ex-gang member come twice a week and mm. sit and talk a 14 wow. year old wow and was getting better yes absolutely you know, so absolutely i was just excited but i got involved mm -hmm. with then psychoanalytic training mm -hmm. because at that center where i was working a lot of people were involved with psychoanalytic training mm. and so they what they did was um I was talking to them and I, and I was encouraged by it because I felt like you're getting t deeper to the root mm -hmm. of the problem, you know, and you're not putting on band-aids. And sometimes I felt like because you have so many people to see that you only have a chance to sort of do crisis management and kind of put band-aids on and mm -hmm. kind of just keep them from, you know, falling apart Absolutely. and keep them functioning, but you're not getting at what's underneath all of this. Mm -hmm. So I started the Psychoanalytic Training Institute mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that was really, a po that's a powerful experience. That is great, yeah. I think also what you were really highlighting is dispelling the myth that you can't work with individuals who have significant um, uh, social emotional needs because they're on such a low scale with Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you just have to keep addressing those basic needs. And you're like, no, that's not true. Yeah. Individuals, you know, once those needs are met, or even if they're not met in the way we think they should be, you can still do some very valuable work with there. Yeah, and yeah, it's funny that you brought that up because a lot of uh, times I'm joking around with my colleagues in the Takini Network, which mm -hmm. I know we'll talk more about that, but mm -hmm. we say that sometimes we feel like we're operating at multiple levels of exactly. that hierarchy. So yes. we're very like altruistic on the top, mm -hmm. but we're dealing with basic needs because there's no Absolutely. grant money and we're trying to survive and, yep. you know, so it's, yeah. Yeah. I think one can, one can travel up and down that That's right. sort of pyramid. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So do you want to say anything about your first um, assessment that you did? I'm not sure about the first one, but just at, at the clinic where I was, it was very, the structure was pretty, um, pretty, it was pretty rigid that mm -hmm. we had 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
and we had to do a psychosocial history and come up with a diagnosis and a mini do a mini mental status exam in 45 minutes. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. Was, a lot. Yes, which yeah. is a lot. Uh -huh. So, and I must have done thousands of intakes. So, I got good at it. I yeah. got good at honing the it was almost like intuitive knowledge or intuitive skills of being able mm -hmm. to recognize there were certain clues. And of course, at that time, it was the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 2, which yes. was only about that thick, uh -huh. so it wasn't as complicated as now. Yeah. But, um, and it was more classical. It, it sort of went more along classical lines mm -hmm. and, you know, like Fenichel's writings about the, you know, mm -hmm. different kinds of personality disorders Absolutely. and personality characteristics and things like that. But so I managed I managed to do that but mm -hmm. we we had to that was just the way it was we had to do it mm -hmm. so again that that sort of practice wisdom that evolves and and using your intuition Absolutely. I remember one gentleman and I hadn't mentioned this to you before that mm -hmm. came in and so it got to 40 minutes and everything sort of checked out but I just had this feeling like mm -hmm. something's going on you know, there's something I had, I wasn't sure what diagnosis to put. Mm -hmm. And so I said, but I just had this uncomfortable feeling. So I said, so can you tell me again why you're coming in now? You know, because you think about there's precipitating factors or you mm -hmm. look for um, people whose symptoms are recent and then how long they've had their symptoms and all of that so that wasn't we weren't getting that information mm -hmm. before that so so when I asked him that he said because God told me to come in and I'm Jesus Christ mm -hmm. I was like there it is I knew <laughs> I knew and and so all his delusions started yep. coming out in the last five minutes Wow and I was so glad that I followed my intuitive, my gut sense Absolutely. that something else was going on. Right, right. Because he was able to hold it together for 40 minutes mm -hmm. and not be psychotic and not mm -hmm. show that he had a thought disorder. Yeah. So I often would tell students that story to say, you know, develop your intuitive skills and your sense and you start exactly. observing, pay attention to what feelings come up because they're clues, they will tell you things. I remember another case where I was, it was like in a, in a therapy group, and um, the person, the individual was, was talking and starting to talk about a conflict with the, his fiance, and all of a sudden I started craving pizza, just out of the blue. I just started craving pizza, and what what you learn is you have this sort of hovering attention, you know, with the psychoanalytic work that you. You pay attention to where your mind goes and what associations huh. you have while you're paying attention to the person, and huh. and so it, it, it's a it's a very rich and complex thing to do. Yeah. So I just observed. I said, "Why am I craving pizza?" Mm -hmm. And so as he kept talking, then he starts describing an argument with his fiance over microwaving pizza but oh this was gosh. after i was having the wow. craving wow so i was picking up this unconscious Absolutely. content yeah that's like crazy yeah that's cool <laughs> that's so cool yeah so um so this was your you know a really rich clinical foundation that you had and mm -hmm. then you started thinking about teaching how did that grow out of? 
Actually, it was when in the doctoral program, um, we talked about one of the things that we read was a book on how to complete and survive a doctoral mm -hmm. dissertation. Absolutely, I remember I that I don't remember one. the author right. or if I have the title exactly correct. And uh -huh. one of the things that they said in the book was some of the best jobs when you're ABD and all mm -hmm. about dissertation are in academia because um, of the culture of academia to write and also the fact that sometimes you can teach courses in the area that you're dis that matches with your dissertation yep. research or, or to try to do that mm -hmm. so that was that was one of the things that that I thought well hey that'd be interesting and then I got a um, council on social work education minority fellow doctoral fellowship mm -hmm. and they brought us one one year they brought us in to the, the CSWE meetings mm -hmm. and they provided kind of mentoring sessions and mm -hmm. orientation mm -hmm. sessions to academia and and so I still was like oh I don't know if I want to actually become a faculty mm -hmm. member but I thought maybe of teaching on the side or something and but doing yeah. full-time clinical practice and working with tribes and, and so then um, as you know the it went on people started recruiting me. Mm -hmm. I said I wasn't, I wasn't done yet, but I had, I was um, close to finishing the, the dissertation mm -hmm. work. And so they started recruiting me. And so I went, I was invited to come to campus. And then mm -hmm. they, one of them said, well, we just want you to present. Yeah, and, and then, you know, if you want to interview, we'll, mm -hmm. you know, we'll interview you. And, but they wanted, they did want to interview me. So it just sort of opened up another window, mm -hmm. and then all of this, the things that were going on and talking about, and I yeah. thought, wow, this might be a good way to get my work done with the uh, historical trauma work. Absolutely. What sort of piqued your interest in starting to do historical trauma work? Um, back in the 70s, I just remembered I was, uh, that was when I was at Columbia, I was just finishing, uh, finishing school there and uh, checking into the psychoanalytic training institutes there to, to, you know, to get started. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I was looking at, it was just uh, one day that I sat and was looking at some historical photographs in mm -hmm. my apartment and mm -hmm. I just started sobbing, mm -hmm. you know, and I just got the sense of overwhelming grief and it felt like it was huge like it wasn't my personal grief yeah that it was something that was generational and mm -hmm. so um, and I so I paid attention to that that I felt like I was carrying something carrying mm -hmm. this grief and this trauma of our ancestors yeah and so then after after that I started to um, just pay, pay, pay attention to that. And then at the Psychoanalytic Institute, Training Institute, I met a child of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And that's also when Helen Epstein's book came out that was around 1976, okay. uh, Children of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. which was really a qualitative study of the experiences of children of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And I started hearing more about that, and that just really resonated for me. And I thought about the American Indian Holocaust, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a sense. And um, 
and started developing more, more and more kind of allies. And, and I just remember my training analyst just happened to be Jewish. Huh. And one time I was talking about something and he got it because he said, yeah. and because it, it, it was something personal and native mm -hmm. specific and he said, mm -hmm. That's genocide. And I was like, yes, mm. thank you for, Absolutely. he acknowledged it. Absolutely. And he got it. it. Yes. Yeah. And I yeah. felt like he understood. Yeah. He understood. And mm -hmm. so that was really encouraging Very too. Very powerful. Yeah. So yeah. I felt like I could keep, keep on this, that I was on to something mm -hmm. that could help, yeah. help our people. So I started integrating it in, you know, working with, in clinical practice and kind of, taking that lens and and then also in in presentations I was doing and group groups I was running and absolutely and just developing it and building that and right workshops uh, something that runs through your narrative a lot is your um, your ability to really reflect on your internal process mm -hmm. and your dreams are really important to you as well I yeah know. and you shared some of those yeah. that helped inform. Yeah, I had a dream as a child that uh, later, as an adult, was interpreted by one of our healers, and the, it was a dream about an elephant. That in my dream, the elephant had escaped from the circus, and, and I think I was probably about six years old, and, and so, and it was, it was like dark and raining, and all of a sudden this elephant is, is like running, and I'm like, you know, wide-eyed, just standing there like, what do I do? And what I do in the dream is I just put my arms out, mm. like mm. to welcome that elephant. Uh -huh. And then, it, like, the elephant jumps into oh. my arms, but then turns into like a little, a little kitten. Mm. Huh. And when I was telling uh, that dream to the healer, he said that was about kind of embracing the real ancient ways and the ancient traditions and mm -hmm. because I had another dream later about an elephant who was drowning mm -hmm. and a whole group of us and this dream was was by uh, was 1992 okay. and then all of us that had been involved with the first historical trauma and unresolved grief intervention the mm -hmm. work which is what's my dissertation work mm -hmm. we were all um, and all of us are involved in traditional ceremonies mm -hmm. so we were all standing around that elephant and we were um, going to that elephant to pray for that elephant. Mm -hmm. And um, that that was, you know, again, so those were, those were really connected with what I, was, what I was told, so. Yeah, wow, it's, yeah, really powerful, yeah. I think. Really, really powerful. So, um, so that's what also you were referring to as the Takini Network, I believe. Is mm -hmm. that right? The training that you did with those facilitators. Yes. Yeah, so in, in 1992, which is when I did the actual dissertation workshop, we had two things. One was a training of the trainers mm -hmm. for to prepare for delivering it to a larger group mm -hmm. and then uh, followed up within a few weeks by the full intervention with 45. That oh. was the 45 people. Okay. Involved, and so what I did was I recruited all my all my friends and relatives to <laughs> to join me in because we had we trained co-facilitators. So each group had a male and a female co-facilitator. Nice. But we but 
also in that sort of psychoanalytic vein that, um, which I really think is important, is um, that if you're going to do clinical work with people, you need to do your own work. So Absolutely. the concept of self-analysis, training analysis is really important because right. otherwise your stuff can get in the way and that's not fair to the people you're working with. Absolutely. So the, so the model was that, that we would go through our own hmm. training healing experience before we would deliver that. So we would go through what we were asking the people to do. Absolutely. Nice. And so I had... Um, so that's when we formed the Takini Network. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to have, uh, to almost form an extended family kinship network mm -hmm. and to, uh, to devote to working on this and working on that healing. So those were the original trainers that were trained, that, you know, that I recruited. And some were, a couple were clinical providers, native, mostly all native folks. and, and uh, some were traditional healers, and some were uh, Bigfoot memorial riders, mm -hmm. and wow. you know, uh, just people who were already doing a lot of their own healing work mm -hmm. and just very committed. So those became our core group. Nice. Well, now you know, sort of. Um, do you think that you want to say any more just about your definition for historical trauma before we? fast forward to where, what you're doing now. Yes, it's, I define it as mm -hmm. um, cumulative emotional and psychological wounding across mm -hmm. generations, including one's own lifespan, because everything up to a minute ago is history. Yes. So I, so some people misunderstand it and think that I'm only talking about the distant past. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm, I'm talking about everything up to, up to the present. Yes and including the present reality, yeah. you know, which just happened a minute ago. That's so right. the, but the, the, the idea was to ground it in the past in the context because mm -hmm. that's destigmatizes mm -hmm. uh, for people. It gives people a frame of, you know, like no wonder, look what's happened mm -hmm. to all our people, mm -hmm. all our ancestors across time that we're just carrying this on and it's affecting us. And there have been horrendous things that have happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we lost the right to bury our, our dead the way that we did traditionally. And those yes. were, all cultures have wisdom in, in what they, their practices mm -hmm. are, have been, that fits with their culture. Right. And right. so when you can't practice it in that way, that's one way of, of stunting the grief or trapping Absolutely. the grief. Mm -hmm. You know, we have certain beliefs that if you don't have certain ceremonies, the spirit of the person can't be released and will be mm -hmm. trapped, you know, on this earth um, yeah. or that other things could happen. And so not being able to do that, um, being survivors of, of massacres, you know, like the Wounded Knee Massacre mm -hmm. and the mass graves where those ceremonies couldn't be performed at that time. Right. Um, those are things that affect people and that this, the grief and the trauma just gets carried on and on. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to heal with that, from that both, in, both traditionally in traditional culture, mm -hmm. but also um, incorporating what we know now about healing and alcoholism and trauma Absolutely. and PTSD and 
complex or grief, complicated grief or prolonged grief and yeah. all of this knowledge that we've gained over many years. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the idea and in my experience with uh, the evaluation and research we've been doing with this is that people at least perceive that as being helpful the historical yeah. trauma concept Absolutely. and they start to feel this release of pressure and like oh no no wonder I feel this way exactly and one one individual I know that um, is more of an elder stated that um, and had been in outpatient behavioral health treatment for mm. for many years said that no one ever asked her about her boarding school trauma and oh, she was never yeah. able to talk about it until she started doing the, the historical mm. trauma work nice and that she really felt like this weight had been lifted off of her absolutely sort of like cathartic yes absolutely yeah great well so fast forward as to what you're doing now so currently, I have a National Institute of Mental Health grant, mm -hmm. and um, so I've been progressing and moving forward, and that's been a that's been a dream of mine mm -hmm. too. Which I have a little story about that. I'll tell you. I'll come back to it in a minute. But um, so that is looking at taking the historical trauma and unresolved grief intervention, which has been recognized as a tribal best practice by uh, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Absolutely. Health Services Administration, in conjunction with First Nations Behavioral Health Association. Huh. Um, Great. So taking, taking the intervention um, and combining it with group interpersonal psychotherapy which um, I think is it focuses on the sort of the relational issues around depression and depression triggers. So role, you know, conflict with another person or your role or um, grief and loss, and um, you know those kinds of issues that get interwoven then into the the model so mm -hmm. not seeing it not not saying that people who have depression may not have a biochemical aspect to it and may need medication and there's been studies where sometimes medication and the treatment work really well absolutely so um, so this study is combining both of those models mm -hmm. and because that IPT is something that NIMH has funded in the past mm -hmm. and um, and I have some colleagues from Columbia who are consultants on that, who are IPT experts. So it's, that's what's going on. So we're taking yeah. the historical trauma intervention, combining it with the group interpersonal psychotherapy, and then randomly assigning people to the two groups. So one okay. gets just the IPT only, and the mm -hmm. one gets the enhanced historical trauma mm -hmm. group. And then the, the goal is to later to do more with you know, a larger study where you can have more sites and so maybe do something with perhaps just the historical trauma only and one with the combined with the IPT and, you know, other mm -hmm. kinds of arrangements Treats, like that. Yeah. Great, and great. so that we're, we're finding, we don't have, um, we've collected the data on the first wave, but we're okay. still doing some follow-up data collection. Yeah. So we don't have all of that analyzed, so we don't know. Okay. The, what the, uh, the data forms will show, mm -hmm. but 
we do know that what is being expressed by the people who have stayed in the groups is really positive, that nice. they feel that this has really helped them. And Very good. So that's good. So that's yeah. what you're busy doing now. Yeah. Nice. Well, Maria, it was such a joy to catch up with you, and I feel so honored to have been able to sit with you the last couple of days. So thank you. So thank you.